Thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. I'm Brandon Huebner. This is Episode 2, Surplus Food, Big Buildings, and Power-Hungry Lugals. Now, before we get going, where I'll explain a little better what a Lugal actually is, I wanted to let you know that the podcast is now available on both iTunes and on Stitcher, so we've got both Apple and Android covered for now, but I am still working on getting it out to a few other platforms also, so I'll let you know as those happen. Reviews on iTunes would be super great if you have a chance, and you can also stop by MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com to find some good photos and info related to this episode in particular, but to all the other episodes also. You'll also find links to our social media profiles, and it would be great if you could connect with the podcast on your favorite social media site, since your support really does mean a lot. Alright, when we left off, the Ubayid people had managed to expand into southern Mesopotamia, where they improved their agricultural methods and began to flourish. Although they traded with fishing villages along the western shore of the Persian Gulf, Ubayid period trade was conducted on a comparatively small scale, and it seems that most of their boating was done in the bitumen-coated reed boat that was prevalent in their culture. The Ubayid people sowed the seeds for societal expansion, but in time the Sumerians came on the scene and their society experienced dramatic growth on a scale that the world had not yet seen. The first historical period of Sumer is called the Uruk period, and at its outset, Mesopotamia was made up of a collection of farming villages that were loosely associated with one another. Historians like to affix the term egalitarian to the Ubayid farming society as a way to say that the farming peoples were relatively equal, but the name Uruk as a label for the post-Ubayid period actually says quite a bit about why there was transition and the form that it took. You see, Uruk was also the name of a city in southern Mesopotamia, and although it's impossible to definitively prove this, Many historians like to call Uruk the first true city on earth. So how exactly did a loosely connected band of farming people begin to turn their agriculturally-based settlements into some of the first large-scale cities in history? And how does the rise of cities relate to maritime history anyways? Well, I'm glad you asked, actually, because we're about to see that both maritime history and the rise of civilization were, in fact, intimately connected. Now, as we saw last time, the Ubayid people were the first to settle in southern Mesopotamia, but because the region was arid, they were forced to improve their methods of farming. Their innovation consisted of building a complex series of canals to harness water and feed it to their crops for irrigation. In fact, there's a very relevant passage in the histories of Herodotus that describes Mesopotamia at a later period but it's just as applicable in our current discussion. Herodotus wrote, Now the land of the Assyrians has but little rain, and this little gives nourishment to the root of the grain, but the crop is ripened and the ear comes on by the help of irrigation, not as in Egypt by the coming up of the river itself over the fields, but the crop is watered by hand or with swing buckets. For the whole Babylonian territory, like the Egyptian, is cut up into channels, and the largest channels is navigable for ships, and runs southeasterly in winter from the Euphrates 
to another river, namely the Tigris. In that passage, Herodotus draws an important distinction that helps highlight a main factor in Mesopotamia's transition to a city-based society. Egypt's agriculture was wholly dependent on the Nile overflowing its banks and bringing the fertile soil to the crops. In Mesopotamia, the complex canal systems brought the life-giving water to the crops, but the main difference is that in Egypt, the Nile did the bulk of the work, while in Mesopotamia, the people did all of the work. The canal works allowed the Ubayid people to grow more crops than they had ever done before. But where there are more crops, and a more complex way of growing them, then more people are needed to keep everything running smoothly. As you can imagine, over time, the population began to expand. And not only did it expand, it became more concentrated, thanks again to the fact that their irrigation system was complicated, requiring a high level of communal effort and organization. As society grew and became concentrated around the maintenance of a complex canal system, almost inevitably a ruling class emerged. The emergence of a ruling class can really be seen as having stemmed from the act of irrigating the land itself, because water in an arid climate is a commodity, and someone has to administrate its equal apportionment among the people. The emergent rulers in Sumer were called either Lugal or Ensi, and as the city-states grew, the Lugal became the ancient equivalent of a king within his city. Although some scholars believe that an Ensi was the ruler of a city, while the Lugal was more like a king and ruled over a confederation of cities. Whatever the technical difference, archaeological evidence for the emergence of a ruling class during early Sumer is seen in the architectural changes that took place during the period. We have a wealth of archaeological info to glean from when we look at the development of cities such as Eridu, Uruk, and Lagash. An important evidence of the change in class structure can be seen in the first monumental architecture in Mesopotamia. Monumental buildings, such as the Anu Ziggurat, or the White Temple in Uruk, were built to impress but also to serve as a focal point for the local population. The development of a discernible settlement hierarchy can also be seen as another evidence of change in class structure and the emergence of an elite class. While the towns were still largely independent, large cities were surrounded by smaller towns, which were themselves surrounded by smaller hamlets, each level with a unique role in the production and distribution of goods. Now, the archaeological evidence within Mesopotamia demonstrates the development of a more structured society that eventually solidified into the first city-states. But for our purposes, we're more interested in how the growing society began to trade and to use the sea as a highway for transportation. Well, the growth of trade in early Sumer can be summarized quite simply. As cities grew, so did the need for resources. Yes, they had plenty of crops to eat, but the region was fairly sparse when it came to the availability of other resources. Their innovation in agriculture allowed them to grow surplus grain, and in time, the Sumerian rulers helped organize the expansion and trade that became quite intricate in the ancient world. There were plenty of enterprising merchants who also helped begin the first large-scale trade, but the ruling class didn't organize long-distance trade for entirely selfless reasons. 
Although the elites emerged at the top of the social structure and held large amounts of power within their respective city-states, it is perhaps a fundamental tendency of human nature that a ruling class will always seek a way to distinguish itself as such. The ruling class was comprised of religious and political leaders that held power together but were often in competition with one another. So the rulers began to use trade as a means to import luxury goods that functioned as displays of their wealth and power. The religious rulers built their monumental temples and filled them with furnishings and decor that came from distant cultures and were really awesome in the eyes of the common Sumerian. Political leaders also distinguished themselves through lavish displays of wealth in their palaces and their personal appearance, but the rulers also focused on the importation of practical natural resources such as copper. Copper was perhaps the most important resource that was imported following the rise of trade, because it was used to improve agricultural equipment and weaponry, but it was also used in artistic ventures as a show of power. Essentially, then, the vast majority of goods that were imported into Mesopotamia, both raw materials and semi-finished products, can be classified as luxuries that were stockpiled and consumed mostly by the elite. All of these indicators of change that we've seen in early Sumer were interrelated, and to a certain extent, once they grew, they fed off of one another. Rulers organized trade and the continued growth of cities, but as the cities grew and the ruling class needed luxury goods to display their status, the lower classes also began to organize what were basically professions, groups of people who learned a trade and excelled at it. Ancient Sumerian cities had common laborers and more skilled laborers who maintained the irrigation systems, but they also had skilled craftsmen in a variety of industries, merchants, traders, and on the list goes. I don't want to get too bogged down in the admittedly fascinating intricacies of society, so I hope that this overview gives us a good basis from which to work when it comes to ancient Sumer. Alright, let's get a bit more into how everything we've looked at so far actually relates to maritime history. If you've listened to the first episode, you'll recall that the Ubayid people did a fair bit of trade within the Persian Gulf, probably using reed boats for the most part. As Sumerian cities grew during the centuries directly following the Ubayid period, trade seems to have subsided somewhat and the theory is that efforts were more focused on the expansion and relation between and among the cities. Almost all of the boat depictions that come to us from the early and mid-Uruk period are of small river craft that are similar in structure and size, leading to the conclusion that Sumer still was heavily dependent on the reed boat even after the Ubayid people were off the scene. Concrete evidence for the use of the sail is still absent from the record at this point in Sumerian history, but some archaeologists surmise, based on a few pieces of evidence, that it was possible they used the sail, so the door is still open for that possibility. In addition to pictorial evidence, almost all of the archaeological evidence from the Uruk period leads us to the conclusion that small reed boats were prevalent, although boat models from the period are rare. Eventually, though, as we've seen, a hierarchical structure began to solidify in Sumer. The need for resources to further expand monumental buildings, combined with a desire to import luxury goods, 
led to a rise in trade and the emergence of a merchant class. This rise in trade began to occur during the tail end of the Uruk period, and it continued from the early dynastic period out into the formation of the Akkadian Empire, whose first ruler was Sargon of Akkad. A perfect example of the long-distance trade that began to emerge can be seen in an artifact that comes from the first dynasty of Lagash, a dynasty that, despite its brevity, was one of the first empires in history. The first king of Lagash was Urananshi, a ruler commemorated for his building projects within the Sumerian city-state. A perforated relief bearing his image gives us a tiny glimpse at the scope of trade in the early dynastic period of Sumer. Perforated stone slabs carved with low reliefs are typical of the early dynasties, and this particular one depicts Urananshi as a builder and protector of Lagash. His image is distinguished from that of the people by its size, as the king is shown presiding over the ceremonies of the foundation and inauguration of a shrine. The inscription on the tablet reads, Urnanchi, king of Lagash, son of Gunidu, built the temple of Ningirsu. He built the temple of Nanshi. He built Apsubanda. Just as the other rulers in Mesopotamia had begun in their own city-states, Urnanshi began the monumental building and established a veritable dynasty. The next inscription, however, is more important to ancient maritime history. It continues by saying that boats from the distant land of Dilmun carried the wood for him. In keeping with the theory that Mesopotamia was devoid of an abundant wood supply, the perforated tablet of Urnanshi is one of the oldest known references to the country of Dilmun, a trade center comprising the modern-day island of Bahrain into Kuwait and possibly even a portion of modern-day Saudi Arabia. It is likely that even in the early dynastic period, Dilmun served as an entrepot, or a transit port and waypoint for stone, building timber, and metal from Oman and even the Indus Valley civilization. Although it was located in the central Persian Gulf, Dilmun also factored heavily in Sumerian mythology and was referred to as the place where the sun rises and the land of the living. It was also mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh as the place where the deified Sumerian hero of the flood, Utnapishtim, was taken by the gods to live forever. A few more pieces of archaeological evidence come from the royal graves at Ur, a burial ground in the center of Ur that was used during the early dynastic period and out into the Akkadian Empire. As the graves at Ur were unearthed, they revealed a wealth of luxury items, many of which would have required importation into Sumer. The expense of the buried items attest both to the city of Ur's importance and to the extent of maritime trade that had been conducted in the Persian Gulf. Even though the trade took place between civilizations that lay at either extreme of the Gulf, we can't necessarily assume that Sumer was heavily reliant on sail technology. Even though it's quite possible that they had early sail technology by this time, very little evidence has been found and long-distance trade could easily have been conducted through a series of small journeys along the coast. Basically, then, we just don't know the precise point at which sails came into prevalent use in the Persian Gulf. Our evidence of boating from the early dynastic period contains a clay boat model, 
a bitumen boat model, and a silver boat model that's quite beautiful. All three of these models from Ur are relatively similar in size and shape. They certainly show a stylistic improvement since the Ubayid period, and they leave the door open to the interpretation that wood had become more widely used as boat-building material, especially when we consider our knowledge that Sumer had begun importing wood from their southern neighbors. The last thing that I want to touch on in this episode is a crucial outgrowth that owes a large part of its creation to both urbanization and to the growth of trade, but it also gives us more insight into just what was going on in ancient Sumer. That outgrowth is something that Sumer is well known for, the invention of writing. Both trade and boat travel predated cuneiform by centuries, but it was mainly due to the expansion of trade and society that the invention of writing became possible. After all, as Sumer began to grow surplus grain, thanks to their well-irrigated plains, they then had to worry about keeping track of it as it was stored and then traded out to other cities and civilizations. It didn't take long for the system of record-keeping to develop into a more versatile cuneiform system, something that we've already seen used on the perforated relief of Ernanshi. The generic Sumerian term for a boat was ma, while the term magur was often used to denote the sacred or ceremonial boats of the gods and kings. It's amazing to see that even in the earliest of records, mankind had a proclivity for naming his boats and some of the sacred Magar boats had wonderful names. The god Enki's boat was called the Crown, the Ibix of the Deep, and the goddess Ninlil's boat was known as the Quay, the Ornament of the Current. Sumerian cuneiform records give us quite a bit of detail concerning their terms for different boats, their construction materials, and even their uses. Not much is revealed in the way of construction technique, but we do know that they used reed boats, wooden boats, and even boats that combined the two materials. Although boats were fairly similar in shape, if we go from the archaeological evidence, cuneiform texts reveal the multitude of uses to which the boats were put, including fishing, travel, transport of various goods, and even rental out to customers. The description of the boat depends largely on the type of text that we're looking at, Economic texts focus mainly on the boat's size and capacity, while other texts focus on the boat's purpose in society. The bitumen that we looked at in episode 1 is also a recurring theme in Sumerian texts, and it played a huge role in the maritime industry throughout Sumer's history. So then, as we draw this second episode to a close, we've witnessed the expansion of Sumer from a scattered farming society into the world's first true civilization. Society became less egalitarian with the emergence of a ruling class, and surplus grain combined with the ambitions of the rulers spurred on long-distance trade that reached south into the Persian Gulf and beyond. Be sure to come back for episode 3, where we'll meet the conqueror, Sargon of Akkad, and trace the rise and fall of trade in the Persian Gulf and Arabian Sea up until the emergence of the Hyksos. We'll also take a more detailed look at a few texts from Mesopotamia, including one text about the journey of the Sumerian moon god, Nana Swin. In the meantime, stop by the website at MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com. And if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, please consider helping spread the word by sharing it with your friends, 
following the podcast on social media, or rating us on iTunes. Thanks again for your support, and until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.